I'd like to introduce um, our speaker on dermatoses in pregnancy. Uh, he's my coworker, Dr. Contreras. He is he actually just recently moved to Denver, Colorado, and works at About Skin Dermatology, um, which is a practice that was started by Joel Cohen, who was unable to make it this morning. Um, and he went to school in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he was a professor at the University of New Mexico Department of Dermatology for um, a while before coming to Denver. So please welcome Dr. Contreras. Thank you. I want to thank uh, Claire and the committee for inviting me to talk today. And what I'm going to be talking about is dermatology and pregnancy. And most women, when they think of pregnancy, they think of all the joys of pregnancy, that healthy glow that their skin is going to have, the expanding family, uh, the uh, child-mother bond. But what a lot of women don't think about when they get pregnant is what we see come into our clinic sometimes. And this is one of the specific dermatoses of pregnancy. And uh, there's many skin problems that pregnant women can encounter, including those that we see commonly. And our challenge as practitioners is to uh, tailor a treatment plan that's going to be both safe and effective because our options are going to be more limited in the pregnant patient. So as an overview, I'm going to start out with hormonal changes that have skin manifestations. And then we'll talk about specific dermatoses of pregnancy. And third, the treatment of common skin disorders and how do we manage these patients. Uh, and then finally, nevi and melanoma in pregnancy. So to begin with, there's many hormonal changes. Uh, the ovaries, the placenta, the anterior pituitary, the adrenal cortex, they all produce increased levels of hormones, including probably most importantly estrogen and progesterone. And these have several effects on the skin. I've included the diagram to, sh to show that basically from the uh, top all the way down uh, to the blood vessels and collagen, there are changes that occur. And probably the most recognized is hyperpigmentation. And this condition that's pictured is linea nigra, one of the more common disorders, or actually normal um, pigmentary changes. And that's due to an estrogen and progesterone stimulatory effect on tyrosinase. And as you remember in this pathway, Tyrosinase is uh, involved in three of the four steps of melanin synthesis, so it's uh, very important. So hyperpigmentation in general occurs in about 90% of pregnant women. Uh, this can include darkening of specific areas of the body, as well as a generalized, generalized mild hyperpigmentation. This begins typically early in pregnancy when the estrogen levels begin to rise, typically in the first trimester. And then most of these changes will actually resolve postpartum. Now I'm going to talk about some of the more specific conditions. So melasma, very common. About 50 to 75% of women are affected. Central facial pattern is probably most common. And then followed by a malar or even just a localized mandibular pattern. And this tends to be more increased in uh, darker skin types. So melasma involves both an increase in the number of melanocytes and melanin. And the pigmentation can be either epidermal or dermal or sometimes a combination of both. And the Woods lamp is actually really useful in determining where the pigment is. So a Woods lamp uh, examination will accentuate pigment in the epidermis, whereas it uh, will not accentuate the pigment in the dermis. And this becomes important with treatment because epidermal pigment is going to respond much better to treatment than the uh, dermal pigment. Now, what's important to remember, too, is that in 70% of cases, melasma will resolve spontaneously postpartum. And uh, also important is the fact that sunlight and genetics both play a crucial role in the development. So uh, all patients should be on daily sunscreen. Usually I recommend SPF 30 or higher, sometimes 50 or higher. 
if they're going to be out for longer than an hour. Um, so treatment I'll often delay in patients till after a year, and you can tell them, you know, most patients will uh, have their pigment resolve within that year. And if not, there are several options, including hydroquinone, tretinoin, or the combination products such as Triluma. Um, chemical peels, lasers, and light, several different types have been used, all with varying success. So hirsutism is due to the action of um, the hormones on uh, the hair follicles. And uh, hirsutism is defined as excessive hair growth, whether it's in an abnormal or a normal distribution. The upper lip, chin, and cheeks uh, tend to be the more commonly affected areas. The coarse terminal hairs that are uh, uh, produced will sometimes um, persist uh, after delivery, whereas um, the fine lanugo hairs tend to disappear uh, postpartum. So not all hirsutism is bad, and actually a lot of women say they love their hair during pregnancy, and it does become fuller. And the reason for that is in, uh, increased antigen phase duration, and that's because of an uh, effect of estrogen on the hair cycle. So in pregnancy, about 95% of hairs will be in the antigen growth phase, compared to about 75 to 85% normally. And postpartum, because of that decreased uh, or drop in estrogen, uh, there's going to be uh, a lot of hairs entering um, the telogen resting phase at the same time, and that basically is what defines telogen effluvium. And that process can occur for up to a year. So all that nice full hair that they have is going to be uh, lost in that, in that year, but usually just back to pre-pregnancy levels. So within 15 months or so, most uh, women will, will uh, have their normal uh, hair back, but it may seem like a loss because of what they've experienced during pregnancy. Other conditions, uh, very common, stria distensa or stretch marks up to 90% of patients. There are several mechanisms felt to be involved with this. Um, first, estrogen and relaxin lead to an increased uh, collagen and mucopolysaccharide deposition. And because of this, there's increased water absorption by the mucopolysaccharides. And that causes the dermis to be somewhat stretched and more susceptible uh, to the um, scarring of stria distensa and I, uh, it's described as a priming of the dermis. Also, there can be decreased and disoriented elastin and fibrillin um, that's been shown histo, uh, by histopathology. So there's a lot of different snake oils, various uh, preventative techniques that people have described, and most have really shown uh, to be rather disappointing. Acne, uh, a, lot of, a lot of women feel like their acne improves during pregnancy. A lot feel like it gets worse. And there's really conflicting um, reports, uh, so it can really go either way. Uh, skin tags develop typically around the neck, around month uh, four to six. And often those will regress postpartum. Uh, the face, the hands, the legs can all uh, show edema. And as far as leg edema, as well as varicose veins and spider veins, um, there's many things that uh, we tell patients to try to avoid um, these problems, but they're all, again, there's pretty varying uh, results, including leg elevation at night, um, sleeping in a left lateral decubitus position, also compression stockings. Um, eccrine gland activity tends to increase during pregnancy, whereas apocrine gland activity decreases. So patients with hydradenitis superativa, which may have an apocrine component, although it, uh, recently it's been described as more of a follicular problem, um, they may actually have improvement during pregnancy. Oops, I think I pressed the wrong button. Okay. 
So vascular changes have been well described, and these are from an estrogen effect on the vessels and as well as increased blood volume and increased blood flow during pregnancy. So one change that's uh, uh, quite common is, is palmar erythema, which is pictured, and spider angioma, which are shown on the chest. And most of these also will resolve spontaneously, although the uh, pulse dye laser for the angiomas can be used and is actually safe during pregnancy. Mostly we try to you know, just reassure patients that they should resolve in most cases. Varicose veins occur in up to 40%, including the larger um, ropey veins on the legs, as well as the smaller spider veins. Um, edema of the gums, as well as like fragility of the gums, bleeding is a common change. There is a condition called epulis gravidarum, which looks just like a pyo uh, pyogenic granuloma. So it's kind of a soft or uh, sometimes semi-firm pink papule with a smooth surface. Uh, Usually these will resolve as well, so if they're asymptomatic and the patient's not having bleeding, difficulty eating, pain, any of those things, then uh, typically they're not treated. A more common uh, or a typical uh, PG is shown on the palm. So next I want to talk about dermatoses specific to pregnancy, including gestational pemphigoid uh, pup, which is... Uh, uh, has many other names, which I'll go through in a second. Also, purago of pregnancy and cholestasis of pregnancy. And I included this slide because in Jerizzo's uh, dermatology text, uh, I think they break it down nicely into four distinct categories. So you'll see the synonyms on the right, and there's many different names that have been used over the past um, hundred years, basically, to describe uh, very similar presentations. So the first picture that I showed was this condition, gestational pemphigoid, and it's also known in the U.S. more commonly as herpes gestationis. And what uh, patients will present with is these urticarial plaques, sometimes in an annular configuration, usually starting at the periumbilical skin, and then they can spread to involve the entire trunk as well as the upper and lower extremities. And often they'll progress to bola or tense vesicles sometimes in an annular configuration that you can see on the right. Uh, there is typically sparing of the face and the mucous membranes in this condition. The mean onset is at 21 to 28 weeks. And there is actually described a postpartum onset. So somebody that's totally asymptomatic during pregnancy may actually present uh, within several hours of pregnancy, and that's about 25% of cases. Now, if they present later than about the three-day point, then you really want to be thinking about other uh, conditions such as bolus pemphigoid. Postpartum flares are very common in 75%, and that's in the immediate uh, postpartum. And uh, these are patients that have already been diagnosed during pregnancy. Um, incidence is one in 50,000 pregnancies. And spontaneous resolution can be expected within six months of delivery, although there are cases described where patients have a chronic course or even develop into a more bolus pemphigoid uh, picture. And what's interesting, too, is that uh, patients that have been diagnosed previously may actually flare when they have their menstrual cycle or when they start oral contraceptive pills. 95% have recurrence in, in subsequent pregnancies, and this is usually a presentation that's earlier and often more severe. So the pathogenesis involves the identical antigen that's found in bolus pemphigoid, and that's the bolus pemphigoid antigen 2, also known as collagen type 17. And I've pictured that here um, since we've all seen this picture uh, many, many times. And what happens is the uh, IgG 
um, attacks the collagen 17, which leads to C3 deposition in the dermis, and then that causes the split that presents as bola uh, within the lamina lucida. And uh, it's possible that actually there is an antigen um, on the placental tissue that's derived from the paternal HLA2. And the mother's immune system is actually reacting to this antigen and then cross-reacting with the mother's um, skin. So diagnosis beyond the clinical presentation, uh, confirmation of the diagnosis can be with a combination of histopathology, direct immunofluorescence, and indirect immunofluorescence. With histopathology, you'll see eosinophilic spongiosis, subepidermal blister, and dermal lymphocytes and eosinophils. And I've, sh I've shown here the classic DIF uh, staining pattern, which um, in this case would be predominantly C3. Uh, if you look just for IgG, it's only going to be positive in about 25 to 50%. If there's any confusion with the DIF, you can actually order the indirect immunofluorescence, and that will show circulating um, IgG autoantibodies in some cases, but there is a more specific test called the uh, three-step complement binding technique, and that's because the complement is really uh, uh, involved in this process, and that will um, uh, often confirm the diagnosis. So the differential would include PUP, allergic contact dermatitis, and a drug eruption. Uh, treatment, you really want to stick with uh, really the mildest treatment possible, of course, and um, potent topical steroids, localized areas uh, being treated are very safe. Um, antihistamines, uh, uh, preferably uh, Benadryl or diphenhydramine, is used. Uh, severe uh, cases sometimes are treated with prednisone, starting at a, a dose typically of 0.5 milligrams per, per kilogram. And then this is tapered slowly to a dose that manages the condition. Sometimes the dose has to be increased again at the uh, time of delivery because of the flare that occurs in a lot of these patients. Um, there is an increased risk of prematurity to the infant. And in 10%, so a small uh, number of cases, there are uh, uh, infants that are born with a mild, um, very similar eruption that tends to resolve within days to weeks, and there's no long-term complications. So PUP stands for puritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. And this is synonymous with toxic erythema of pregnancy and papular eruption of pregnancy, although I sometimes see these terms applied to conditions which... Um, uh, may sound uh, different, but ultimately they're all very similar in their uh, pathophysiology. Incidence can be as high as 1 uh, to 160. Risk factors include the first pregnancy, um, rapid and late stretching, as well as, um, uh, or sorry, of the abdominal skin. And usually this will develop late in the third trimester. And that's uh, very similar to cases uh, such as gestational pemphigoid and um, so sometimes there is some clinical confusion. You can see in these pictures, uh, there are what appear to be urticarial papules and plaques, which in early cases of um, gestational pemphigoid would be very uh, similar. Although in this case, you'll see that there's some accentuation along the abdominal stria, as opposed to that periambilical um, uh, exanthem that we saw with the other picture. So there's no maternal or fetal risk. It tends to resolve spontaneously postpartum within seven to 10 days. It's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So under histopathology, you can see um, also spongiosis with the eosinophils. 
um, perikeratosis, perivascular lymphocytes, and dermal edema. Um, to distinguish this from one of the next conditions I'm going to talk about, cholestasis of pregnancy, you'd want to make sure there's normal um, hepatic function profile. And if there's any confusion about this uh, versus gestational pemphigoid, order the DIF and IIF. Um, differential, again, gestational pemphigoid, allergic contact dermatitis, and drug eruption. And very similar treatment options, topical steroids and oral antihistamines are preferred over any um, other systemic agents. So purigo of pregnancy, it's really felt to be um, similar to an atopic dermatitis presentation. And this would need to be distinguished from uh, cholestasis of pregnancy, both of which can present with just secondary lesions, say excoriations as opposed to a primary urticarial papule like you see in the other conditions. Um, these are discrete, extens uh, located on the extensor surfaces, usually the second and third trimester. It can be both follicular, follicular or non-follicular, and it's really a diagnosis of exclusion, one out of 300 patients. Can last weeks to months postpartum. Again, there's no maternal, maternal or fetal risk. And the workup includes hepatic function profile, again, to um, distinguish this from cholestasis. And uh, once again, topical steroids, antihistamines, plus or minus ultraviolet B light, which has been effective in these cases. So cholestasis of pregnancy. Uh, this presents as extreme puritis, usually the late third trimester. And there may or may not be jaundice. And uh, this can be tested with... Um, or uh, tested by looking at the bile acid production as well as the um, hepatic function panel, including the AST. Uh, symptoms typically are worse at night and worse on the trunk, the palms, and the soles. Some patients will actually present with the classic uh, pattern of cholestasis, um, including dark urine, light stools, or jaundice within two to four weeks of um, their symptoms. Spontaneous resolution, again, is expected after delivery. And... Uh, just like with uh, pemphigus gestationis, you can see a flare of the condition with oral contraceptives. Recurrence is about 60 to 70% in future pregnancies. And the increased risk of meconium staining and fetal distress have been described. Treatment uh, is usually managed through OBGYN, and that's um, ursodeoxycholic acid. I've included this slide because I think it just shows nicely the uh, workup of somebody uh, who's pregnant, uh, presenting with puritis. <coughs> so if they have normal liver function tests, normal bile acids, then they're usually in this category of purigo of pregnancy. If they have abnormal liver function, then you'd want to look at the AST specifically. If the AST is more than four times normal, then you want to be thinking about other forms of uh, hepatitis, including viral or drug-induced hepatitis. So the third part of the presentation is dealing with treatment of common skin disorders in pregnant patients. So all these disorders occur in uh, pregnant and non-pregnant patients alike. And again, uh, the trick is finding the solution uh, that's not going to be harmful. And I wanted to include the FDA pregnancy categories, A through X. Uh, usually we'll try to stick with the A and B categories for pregnant patients. There's the most evidence that there's no risk of um, uh, fetal abnormalities. With uh, class C or category C, the human risk has not been uh, evaluated enough to be able to say whether or not they can be used safely. 
or they may be uh, animal studies that show risk. So acne and rosacea, again, acne may or may not flare. If it does flare, uh, there's many topical agents that are considered safe, and erythromycin, clindamycin, metronidazole, azelaic acid, those are all category B. Um, what's not on this list and what's on the next page is salicylic acid and benzyl peroxide. And although they're found in all kinds of over-the-counter products, they're actually listed as category C. Um, blue light and NDEAG uh, have been shown to be effective and safe as well. Tretinoin is category C, and uh, there is, there, sorry, in the past there have been actually reports of tretinoin applied topically leading to congenital malformations. And what's interesting is that these malformations were identical to those seen in patients that have been given oral um, retinoids. Adapalene is category C, tazeratine category X, dapsone, at least the oral form, is category C, and again, sal acid and benzoyl peroxide category C. Oral medications um, you want to avoid, including tetracyclines, category C, um, or sorry, category D. And these can lead to, after the first trimester, um, deciduous tooth staining, decreased bony growth, and maternal liver toxicity. So we don't routinely ask patients to, um, uh, you know, to sign a consent or anything for tetracycline because as long as it's stopped within uh, the first couple of weeks of uh, finding out that they're pregnant, usually there are no complications. Erythromycin is category B, and you still might want to avoid that orally simply because there, have, there has been a reported increased risk of cardiovascular malformations, especially when given early in pregnancy. So my approach is to typically prescribe first-line azelaic acid, either 15% gel or 20% cream. And there's a lot of data showing that this is equally effective to tretinoin, 0.05% cream. Also, uh, clindamycin and erith uh, sorry, benzoyl peroxide and erythromycin. And the benefit is that there's no systemic adverse effects, uh, it has excellent tolerability, and there's no risk of P. acne's resistance. And then you may or may not add to this clindamycin 1% and possibly an over-the-counter glycolic acid, which is an alpha-hydroxy acid, as opposed to the beta-hydroxy acid, which is salicylic acid, and that's felt to be safe in pregnancy. Um, and then non-comedogenic makeups. So in our office, we actually do have patients sign a consent if they're going to be prescribed tretinoin. Any patient that's, or a woman that's uh, childbearing potential will just sign just so they're aware of the um, poten potential risk. Although it's very, very low, um, it's still a good idea just to make them very aware of that. In um, difficult cases, you might consider glycolic acid peels, microdermabrasion, or variants of microdermabrasion, um, or blue light, or NDAG 1064. Psoriasis can actually flare in 40, uh, 40 to 60% of patients. About 10 to 20% will improve. And agents that are considered safe include topical steroids. And I know it says category C, uh, but in small uh, areas of involvement, especially localized psoriasis, it's safe to use even the uh, more potent topical steroids, um, sometimes in combination with calcipotriene, which again is category C, but it's only about 6% absorbed. And again, for localized plaques, it's going to be safe. Uh, the safest thing for more extensive plaques is really um, uh, broadband uh, ultraviolet B therapy. Cyclosporin is sometimes used for severe cases such as a pustular psoriasis flare in pregnancy, um, but it is also category C and uh, 
We want to avoid that whenever possible. Other things to avoid, um, PUVA. Um, Sorolin is a potential teratogen, although there haven't really been any adverse outcomes reported. Methotrexate, of course, and uh, acetretin also would not be prescribed. Acetretin isn't prescribed for women of childbearing potential in general um, because it can be converted to a more persistent etretinate, uh, which is uh, around for much longer, stored in the fat. So there's limited data to support safe use of the biologics. And although they're all class or category B, um, at this point, there are still very new medications. Um, they're typically used second line after somebody, say, fails light therapy or for whatever reason can't come in as often as they would need to for um, UVB. And so you just want to review the um, risks real carefully, just as you would with any other patient. So more typical dermatitis, eczema, asteatotic dermatitis, um, allergic contact dermatitis, these can be safely treated with topical steroids. If you are going to consider systemic steroids, uh, try to reserve these for patients um, after the first trimester, because during the first trimester, there are some studies showing intrauterine intra, um, growth retardation, as well as a small increase in the incidence of cleft lip and palate. Uh, short courses. Uh, typically the benefit will outweigh the risk, especially after the first trimester. So calcineurin inhibitors, including um, Elidel and Protopic, are Category C. And uh, there's just not enough evidence to put them into the uh, Category B. But so far, no reports of adverse effects. If you're going to use antihistamines, um, first-line agents to consider with the most data to support them would be chlorpheniramine and diphenhydramine. Uh, hydroxazine has been occasionally um, uh, reported to uh, cause congenital abnormalities, although the data is really pretty sparse on that. Genital warts are safely treated with trichloracetic acid and cryotherapy. Omicromod is category B. Avoid pedophilin or pedophilotoxin, which are category C, with herpes simplex. Acyclovir really has the most um, evidence, the most history to support its safe use, so that would be the safest one to go to for um, herpes simplex. Fungal infections can be treated safely with topical antifungals, as well as oral terbinafine, which is category B. Uh, oral fluconazole is category C. And uh, although most would agree that small doses, such as used for vaginal candidiasis, are safely treated or are safely used, whereas a prolonged course of 400 milligrams per day, especially in the first trimester, um, has been shown to be teratogenic. You want to avoid itraconazole. Category C. Bacterial infections, the go-to medications are going to be penicillin, azithromycin, and cephalosporins. Um, although you'll see that here there is a possible association of congenital malformations with certain antibiotics. And you'll see on that list one that we use very commonly, Keflex or cephalexin. Um, so you might want to um, go with something like amoxicillin instead. So the last part of my presentation, I want to review nevi and melanoma in pregnancy. And beginning with nevi, the first question I've posed here is, do nevi change in pregnancy? And there have been several studies, and I'm just going to run through each of these uh, briefly. First, in the 1980s, there were um, observation studies and surveys of pregnant women. So they were asked to point out any moles that they thought were changing. And the study by Fukar in 1985, one-third of 86 pregnant women self-reported changes 
128 of these lesions were randomly biopsied and showed uh, slightly more atypia than non-pregnant controls, but there were really no significant uh, differences. Uh, Sanchez in 1984 uh, showed that 389 pregnant women, 10% um, uh, of those noted changes in their uh, pigmented lesions, and 23 of these were biopsied, and none showed atypia. In the 90s, there were uh, a couple of prospective studies, the first involving women with dysplastic nevus syndrome. These are the patients that tend to um, come to clinic at 4.30 and uh, take a lot of time, a lot of dermoscopy, uh, but they do need to be monitored more closely because uh, they have about a 3.9 times um, rate of change of their nevi during pregnancy compared to when they're not pregnant. Uh, Penoyer in 1997 looked at nevi in the back, and what they were trying to do in this study was eliminate that effect of stretch on the abdominal skin that sometimes will result in the uh, enlargement of the nevus. And they showed that 22 pregnant women without dysplastic uh, nevi uh, uh, when examined, uh, they had really some that increased in size, some that decreased in size, but overall no, no significant change. So dermoscopy has become very popular, and uh, I don't know how many of you, how many use dermoscopy in your everyday practice? And so I think every, every year that number is increasing, the percentage that do. I, I basically wouldn't uh, be able to function confidently at this point without my dermatoscope, and it was just part of my training starting out. And um, uh, So these, these studies looked at dermatoscopic monitoring in pregnancy, and Zampino in 2006 looked at 86 different nevi in 47 pregnant women, and changes considered generally mild and uh, did not require biopsy. Um, they did see that there were occasionally some increased pigmented dots and globules, but usually in a symmetric pattern, and again, not uh, to the point of biopsy. Uh, Acturic in 2007 looked at 97 nevi in 56 pregnant women. And although there was increased size of the nevi, they did attribute this to the expansion of the tissue of the abdomen, the thighs, areas that typically would expand more so. And uh, again, no um, really typical changes. So back to our question, do nevi change in pregnancy? Well, sometimes they do, but usually it's size, the color may get slightly darker, but you still go back to your normal criteria, the ABCDs of melanoma, which I've just pictured here. And uh, so you use the same criteria you would with dermatoscopic techniques, your clinical exam, and any nevus uh, that uh, needs to be biopsied would have to meet the same criteria regardless of pregnancy status. So you can't um, just think, well, that mole's probably going to change because you're pregnant and that's why it looks funny. No, just treat it the same as you would everybody else. If you do a biopsy in pregnancy, lidocaine is category B, and uh, uh, progesterone actually increases the sensitivity to anesthetics. They might require less than they would typically. Topical anesthetics include EMLA um, and LMX, which are both category B, and epinephrine is listed as category C. But in low doses, especially for the biopsies that we're doing in clinics and small excisions, uh, this is probably safe. And there's actually a study showing that levels of endogenous epinephrine after a period of severe stress is much higher than any kind of level you'd get after an injection. So with melanoma in pregnancy, uh, the question becomes, is melanoma prognosis worsened by pregnancy? And there have been several uh, studies looking to answer this question. Uh, there were six case-controlled studies with anywhere from 23 to 92 patients, 
and up to nine years of follow-up, and there's really no effect on survival um, uh, because of pregnancy. So somebody that presents during pregnancy with the melanoma doesn't have a worse prognosis than somebody that's not pregnant. There were two population-based studies, also with um, uh, several or many patients, up to 10 years of follow-up showing no uh, change on survival. Then there's little known also about the effect of pregnancy on the prognosis of somebody that's been diagnosed with melanoma in the past. And then how do we advise them in the future as far as their risk of uh, uh, progression of the melanoma if they were to get pregnant again? Well, so far, there's no evidence to show adverse effect of pregnancy on survival either before, during, or after a melanoma diagnosis. Then I wanted to touch on also the risk to the fetus. So in all the literature over the past several years, there's only been 87 reported cases of placental um, with or without fetal metastasis of any type of cancer. What's interesting, though, is that the melanomas make up uh, the most number of these cases. So out of those 87, 27 were actually due to melanoma. And then six out of those 27 uh, affected the fetus as well. So predominantly, there were placental metastases, uh, but six of those affected the fetus. Um, all, although maternal to fetal metastasis is extremely rare, again, remember that melanoma is the most likely uh, to metastasize there. And so what does this mean for our practice? Uh, the recommendations would include uh, any patient that presents with metastatic melanoma in pregnancy should have the placenta thoroughly examined. And if there is evidence of metastatic disease, those infants would need to be closely followed with abdominal ultrasound, routine skin examinations. Um, also, it would be useful to advise delay of future pregnancies for two to three years, especially when the melanomas are more advanced at diagnosis. And that's only because um, the recurrence risk is about 60 to 70% in the first two years, and then up to 90 or 80 to 90% of those patients will um, present within five years. So we're just kind of finding a, a you know, middle ground as far as uh, recommendations. And I've included this picture to show what I thought Denver was going to be like when I moved there from Albuquerque. But this is actually a glacier in uh, Alaska. Sometimes Denver feels like this, even like in April. It was a little shocking. But uh, I just want to thank you all for your time. And please uh, ask any questions that you have. I'm sorry? Um, hair laser in pregnancy? I think my first reaction would be try to avoid any laser in pregnancy, uh, only for the medical, re medical legal uh, aspect. I, you know, the laser is not going to penetrate deep enough to, to cause, uh, in my mind anyway, any kind of risk to the fetus. But if there is some kind of congenital abnormality that results, you'd hate to be the person they come back to and say, well, you laser that. Do you think that could have been involved? And that's just not a question I want to you know, answer. So. What, oh, sorry. <laughs> what do you find effective um, for breastfeeding for acne and rosacea, or do you stay away from things as long as they're nursing? Yeah, and I should have mentioned that too. I really, I would uh, put breastfeeding in the same category as pregnancy and avoid all the same things that I would in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Thanks for bringing that up. Sure.
to uh, topical steroids during pregnancy or any that you would definitely avoid? Topical steroids? Yeah. I think for, for uh, localized areas, there's plenty of evidence showing that they're safe. And uh, there was one case of a woman that was applying 40 milligrams of steroid a day um, in the first trimester, and there was a, um, I think it was a cleft lip that was uh, found. But again, is that random or is it associated? It's hard to say, but again, that was a, a high dose early in pregnancy. So the safest time to use any steroid, topical or oral, since they're both category C, is going to be second and third trimester. But for localized areas, I think um, there's enough evidence to show that it's safe. But there's none specifically that you would avoid in um, specific categories? I would probably stick to things triamcinolone or less potent, uh, more potent agents uh, just for you know refractory cases or just real severe pruritic lesions that aren't responding to the lower potency. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Is Benadryl contraindicated in the last two weeks of pregnancy? Well, yeah, I believe there are reports of um, uh, what's called retrolental fibroplasia, and that can be increased with the use of Benadryl in the last two weeks of pregnancy. And that's something, again, I should have included in the slide. Um, but any other time during pregnancy, it is, it is considered safe. So thank you again.